This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions summer season. Tonight's show brings you an electric talk by Naomi Klein. She received the Sydney Peace Prize for her climate activism. If you think about it, taking action now to slow down climate change is the best way to prevent war and huge movements of desperate people. I know the Defence Forces take climate change seriously as a threat, but I don't see them out there in blockadia trying to stop the coal, oil and gas, which must stay in the ground. If you saw Naomi Klein on Q&A last year, you will see she was quite radiant. And that's the best advertisement for activism I know. You will hear it in her voice tonight. I meet many people who are overwhelmed by the fight in front of us to stop that new mine, to prevent that polluting oil pipeline, to act, to get democracy back, to get governments to act in a protective way. These people feel grim and despairing and they do not know where to link up with other people. But if you are listening now, please take heart from Naomi Klein. Her message is all about acting collectively and winning through to a new culture of caretaking. This is Naomi Klein at the Sydney Peace Prize. Bajari, Kumarua. Norma Ingram, So good evening, everybody. I have just said hello. Welcome to all of you in the local Aboriginal Gadigal language and also my language. So I'm actually from over the Blue Mountains, Wiradjuri. Some of you may know a little town called Cowra. That's my mother's, mother's traditional lands. And I can trace my ancestry right back, actually, to Windradine and further, who was one of our freedom fighters at the time um, of Captain Arthur Phillip. So this evening, it is my great responsibility to welcome you to Aboriginal land. And I do that with the greatest of respect, and knowing with that, I do have a responsibility. As I said, I'm Norma Ingram, and I belong to the longest continuous practice culture on this entire planet. And all of us, all of us Australians, we can say that with pride. I certainly do, as a First Nations person, as as a woman, as an Aboriginal woman. And, And I just love this country. And it gives me great pride when we do acknowledge traditional lands, where we are this evening, is we are on the the traditional lands of the Gadigal people. And the picture screams a thousand different words. He was running from the terror with his father, who once believed that nothing So he'd handed a man two thousand precious dollars The way you'd rest a bird in a lie 
seen the connectivity not only of human beings to human beings of different cultures and political persuasions but who have seen human beings relationship to the natural resources of the world 
and seen the rapacious nature with which some seek to drive and exploit those resources to the detriment not only of us as human beings but to the world itself to place it completely at risk. And that's, of course, our special guest, Naomi Klein, the winner of the Sydney Peace Prize. But more than that, a, a valiant warrior in the world where it's so difficult for people to hear and listen to what it is you've, you're trying to get across about the uniqueness of the world. I went to Kiribati some time ago out in the Pacific and saw the struggle of people who are dealing with the effects of climate change because of the sea rising and the threat to their home and to their culture. And then within a month or so I went to San Francisco and the contrast was enormous. Cars, huge developments. And I thought about the people from Kiribati and the little frigate bird that they'd used as a symbol of the search for a home whilst flying across vast oceans, the search for land to rest and to be at peace. And I often wonder, what is it about us as humans that has detached us almost, except for indigenous peoples in the main and very dedicated people to the environment. But what has detached us from the land, from its living being, from our very essence, our connectivity to it? And the image that often comes to my mind is how most of us have been socialised, particularly if you've got a Christian background through the story of Adam and Eve. And that particular story has many sorts of versions that people extract from it. But for me, if you understood the apple as all of the resources of the world, all of those essential ingredients to sustain us, water, air, beautiful countrysides and other sorts of elements. If you saw the apple as symbolising those factors and then you look at humans who, are, who have a common humanity but who are diverse by virtue of culture and you wonder what the story is really about because they were in a pristine environment until the simplicity of the story of the apple emerged and then they were cast out. And the relationship, the connectivity between humans, the environment and whoever has been responsible for the creation of these things in whichever traditions we belong to was also severed. And, of course, people have got different sorts of stories about how to restore the relationship, how to restore 
the harmony between humans and the harmony of humans with creation. And ultimately, if you believe in a creator or some spirit greater than ourselves, the relationship with that particular spirit. If you talk like that in a boardroom of a corporation, they'd probably have you certified. And if you talk like that in the Parliament of Australia, they'd probably have you certified as well. But that's the quintessence of what we are faced with and the urgency of us to come back to the Mother Earth, to re-fall in love with the Earth and to caress it in a way that gives us life as well as gives life to the Earth. And in that way we help regenerate those constructive things about us as human beings. Now tonight it's my very special privilege to welcome someone of the stature of Naomi Klein who has grappled with all of these sorts of elements in a far more sophisticated and in-depth manner than I've tried to present in a simple story in a new version of Adam and Eve. But it is about connectivity at the essence of it and how we impact each other through our stupidity or through our avariciousness and our greed and through our desire for more and more rather than coming to terms with developing the capacities of resilience and sustainability. So please, you've come to listen to a great person who's making a great contribution to the world and so pleased that she's in our country and who's the recipient of the Sydney Peace Prize. Please welcome Naomi Klein. Thank you, Senator Dodson. It is such an honor to be introduced by you. Thank you for your words and wisdom. I assure you this will be much less sophisticated. Um, I must say that I also have to praise you for your courage um, in the Senate. I've had run-ins with a few of your senators on Twitter. You are a brave soul. Um, I would like to pay my respects to the elders, both past and present, of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation on whose land we gather. Norma, thank you for that beautiful and inspiring welcome to country. And David Hirsch and everybody at the Sydney Peace Prize, I am so tremendously honored to be here, and I want to extend a special thanks to the members of the jury. Um, there's just an incredible group of people who I'm sharing the stage with tonight, and I'm so excited about it. Thank you all for being here and taking time out of your busy schedules. I want to acknowledge and thank my husband, Abby Lewis, my great collaborator in all things, and our four-year-old son, Toma, wearing his very first suit, is here somewhere tonight. He may make himself known, and I'm for that. I apologize. Um, I want to thank our dear friend and collaborator, Alex Kelly, an amazing filmmaker, artist, um, and activist uh, who has introduced me to so many amazing people in Australia. I also want to acknowledge 
the many land and water warriors in this room fighting to protect territory from coal mining, fracking, and oil drilling, the lands that you love and cherish, and as you protect your lands, protecting the planet as a whole from disastrous warming in the process. There are heroes among us. I was making notes for this lecture and thinking a lot about it over the past couple of weeks. And I knew that I really should be preparing two versions, the Hillary wins version and the Trump wins version. But there was a part of me that rebelled. I just couldn't bring myself to write the Trump wins version. My typing fingers went on strike. And in retrospect, I was derelict in my duties. And I apologize if what follows seems rushed. It is rushed because it is. It is a hot take, as they call it, on this hot planet. If there is a single overarching lesson in the Trump victory, perhaps it is this. Never, ever underestimate the power of hate, of direct appeals to power over the other, the migrant, the Muslim, blacks, us ladies, especially during times of economic hardship. Because when large numbers of white men find themselves hurting and insecure, and those men were raised in a social system built on elevating their humanity over the humanity of others, a lot of them get mad. And there's nothing wrong with being mad. There's lots to be legitimately mad at. But within a culture that so systematically elevates some lives over other lives, Anger makes these men and some women putty in the hands of whatever demagogue of the moment is offering to win back the illusion of dominance, however fleeting. Build a wall, lock them up, deport them all for life, grab them wherever you like, show them who's boss. What other lessons can we take from our barely three-day-old reality that we now live in a world with the president-elect Donald Trump. One lesson, that the economic pain is real and not going anywhere. Four decades of corporate neoliberal policies of privatization, deregulation, free trade, and austerity had made sure of that. Another lesson, leaders who represent that failed consensus are no match for the demagogues and neo-fascists. They have nothing tangible to offer and they are seen quite correctly as being the people responsible for much of the pain. Only, uh, <laughs> only a bold and genuinely redistributive agenda has a hope of speaking to that pain and directing it where it belongs. The politician purchasing elites who benefited so extravagantly from the auctioning off of public wealth, the polluting of our land, water, and air, and the deregulation of the financial sphere. But there is a deeper lesson that we must urgently learn from this week's bombshell. If we want to defend against the likes of Donald Trump, and every country has their own Trump, we must urgently confront and battle racism and misogyny in our culture and in our movements and in ourselves. This cannot be an afterthought. It cannot be an add-on. It is central to how someone like Trump could rise to power. 
Many people said they voted for him despite his objectionable views and pronouncements on race and gender. They liked what he had to say about trade and bringing back manufacturing and that he wasn't a Washington insider. But that doesn't cut it. Because you cannot cast a ballot for someone who is riling up race, gender, and physical ability-based hatreds unless, on some level, you think those issues aren't important, that those lives matter less than yours. You can't do it unless you're willing to sacrifice the other for your gain. Neither can we tell ourselves that when we fight for peace and economic justice, it will benefit black people and indigenous people the most because they are the most victimized in our current system of economic equality and state repression and climate change. There is too long and too painful a track record of left and liberal movements leaving workers of color and indigenous people and women and their labor out in the cold. To build a truly inclusive movement, there needs to be a truly inclusive vision that starts with and is led by the most brutalized and excluded. Ronaldo Walcott, a great Canadian writer and intellectual, issued a challenge a couple of months ago to white liberals and leftists like me. And I'd like to quote from it at length. He wrote, black people are dying in our cities, crossing oceans in resource wars, not of our making. Indeed, it is obvious that black people's lives are disposable in a way and fashion that is radically different from other groups globally. It is from this stark reality of marginalization that I want to propose that any new policy actions in the North American context ought to pass what I call the black test. The black test is simple. It demands that any policy meet the requirement of ameliorating the dire condition of black people's lives. When a policy does not meet this test, then it is a failed policy from the first instant of its proposal. That's worth thinking hard about. I know that my work has not always passed that test and indeed has failed. But now more than ever, I know that those of us who talk about peace and justice and equality must rise to this challenge. When it comes to climate action, it is absolutely clear that we will not build the kind of power necessary to win unless we embed justice, particularly racial but also gender, social and economic justice, at the center of our low-carbon policies. Intersectionality. <laughs> Intersectionality, as the kids these days call it, is the only path forward. We cannot play my crisis is more urgent than your crisis. War trumps climate, climate trumps class, class trumps gender, gender trumps race. That trumping game, my friends, is how you end up with a Trump. Either we fight for a future in which everyone belongs, starting with those most battered by injustice today, or we keep losing, and there is no time for that. Moreover, when we make these connections among issues, climate, capitalism, colonialism, slavery, there's a kind of relief, because it actually is all connected, all part of the same story. 
which is why I've called my lecture here tonight, Captain Cook's Climate. I was feeling this very intensely last week when I visited the Great Barrier Reef, and some of you may have seen the short film that we made with the terrific team from Guardian Australia. Floating in the waters off of Port Douglas and looking at a whole lot of bleached and dead coral, I found myself thinking, as one does in those parts, about Captain Cook, probably because everything's named after him. Thinking about all of these forces that came together right at the exact time that the endeavor navigated those waters and almost sank on a coral reef. As all of you good students of Australian history know, Cook arrived in Queensland in 1770. And it's interesting to note that just six years later, the Watts steam engine was put on the market, a breakthrough technology that massively accelerated the Industrial Revolution, now powered by the potent combination of slave labor in the colonies and the power of coal through the Watts steam engine. That same year, 1776, Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, the textbook for contemporary capitalism. Colonialism, slavery, coal, capitalism, all tightly bound up together, creating the modern world. This country called Australia was born precisely at the dawn of fossil-fueled capitalism. We should connect the dots because the dots are connected. The land grabs, climate change, and the economic and social theories that have rationalized all of this. We are all living in a very real sense in Captain Cook's climate. One detail that I found really interesting in my research for this lecture is that the, the HMS Endeavour didn't start its life as a Navy vessel tasked with unlocking astro astrological and biological mysteries and in its spare time claiming vast swaths of territory for the British Crown without indigenous consent. No. The endeavor was built in 1764 to haul coal through British waterways. Um, when the Navy purchased it, it had to be radically retrofitted to be suited for Cook's, Cook and Banks's globe-trotting voyage. And it does seem fitting in a way that the ship that laid claim to vast swaths of what is now Australia started life as a coal vessel. Is it any wonder your government has an unnatural love affair with coal? <laughs> Is it any wonder that as the catastrophe unfolds on the Great Barrier Reef, one of the wonders of the world, this has not caused in any way the government in Queensland to rethink its crusade for new coal projects. As Vanana Shiva said, when she accepted this prize six years ago. The roots of our crisis lie in an economy which fails to respect ecological and ethical limits. Limits. <laughs> limits are a problem for our economic system. Ours is a culture of endless taking, as if there was no end to what can be taken and no consequences for the taking, a culture of grabbing and going, and now this grab and go culture has reached perhaps its logical conclusion 
the most powerful nation on earth, has elected itself a grabber-in-chief, a man who openly brags about grabbing women without their consent, who says about the invasion of Iraq we should have taken their oil, international law be damned. This rampant grabbing, of course, is not just a Trump thing. We have an epidemic of grabbing, land grabbing, resource grabbing, even grabbing the sky by polluting so much that there is no atmospheric space left over for the poor. And now we are hitting the, mall, the, the, the wall of maximum grabbing. That's what climate change is telling us. That's what our endless wars and the huge displacement of people is telling us. And maybe that's what Trump is telling us too that it's time to put everything we have into shifting from this culture of endless taking to a culture based on caretaking and beginning to repair the damage. Caring for the planet or caring for country, as you say here, and caring for one another. It's so good to be with you during these difficult times. It's a good time to gather. When I learned that I had been awarded the Sydney Peace Prize, for my work on climate change, I was incredibly honored. This is a prize that has gone to some of my personal heroes, Arundhati Roy, Noam Chomsky, Vandana, as I mentioned, Desmond Tutu, among so many others. It's a very nice tribe to be a part of. So I was thrilled to receive the call. But after that wore off a bit, the doubts surfaced. One was, why me? My writing builds on the work of so many thousands of climate justice activists around the world, many of whom have been at it for much longer than me and never been recognized for their work. Another doubt was more practical. Can I really justify the transportation pollution required to accept an award for doing my bit to fight pollution? <laughs> and to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not sure I can justify it but I consulted with Australian friends and colleagues, and they pointed out that your government is the number one coal exporter in the world, selling directly to those countries whose emissions are growing most rapidly, and that you are well on your way to playing the same leadership role for liquefied natural gas. Even as other countries freeze and wind down their coal production, your prime minister is defiant, he says the plan is to stay the course with coal, quote, for many, many decades to come. That's long past time when we all need to be off that dirty fuel if the Paris climate goals have any chance of being met. Now, <laughs> Australia really is standing out among wealthy industrialized nations for this defiance, for this aggressive pursuit of new fossil fuel frontiers. Canada, under our last Prime Minister, used to provide some rather unhealthy competition in this arena, but now Justin Trudeau, our hot new Prime Minister, is <laughs> at least saying the right things, if not doing enough of them. Earlier this week, I said that Australia stands increasingly alone in raising its sooty middle finger to the world. Unfortunately, I now have to amend that statement. Starting in January, when Donald Trump moves into the White House, Turnbull will have some company. Ouch. The Australian friends whom I consulted told me that having the megaphone that comes with this prize might help support their work, crucial work to stop new fossil fuel projects 
like the gargantuan Carmichael coal mine in Wangan and Jengalingu territory, and many of the people at the forefront of that fight are here tonight, and I think they deserve a round of applause. Crucial fights to stop the northern gas pipeline, which would open up vast areas of the northern territory to industrial fracking. This resistance is of global importance because these mega-projects are massive pools of carbon that we now call unburnable carbon. Carbon dioxide and methane that, if extracted and burned, will not only blow past Australia's paltry climate commitments, but blow through the global carbon budget as well. And the math on this is very clear. In Paris, our governments, even yours, agreed to keep warming below two degrees Celsius while pursuing efforts to limit temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And getting 1.5 in there was a huge victory for low-lying island states who fought incredibly hard for that. That goal, and it's an ambitious one, places all of humanity within the confines of a carbon budget. That's the total amount of carbon that can be emitted if we want to have a fighting chance of meeting those targets. And what we now know, thanks to breakthrough research from Oil Change International in Washington, D.C., is that if we burn all the oil, gas, and coal that is currently in production in coal mines and oil and gas fields, we would very likely pass two degrees of warming and certainly pass 1.5. What we cannot do under any circumstances is precisely what the fossil fuel industry is determined to do and what your government is so intent on helping them to do. Dig new coal mines, open new fracking fields, and sink new offshore drilling rigs. All of that carbon needs to stay in the ground. The fossil fuel frontier is closed. What we must do is carefully wean ourselves off of those existing fossil fuel projects at the same time as we rapidly ramp up renewables until we get to 100% well before mid-century. The good news is that we can do it with existing technologies. Prices are dropping incredibly quickly. The good news is that we can create millions of jobs around the world as we shift to a post-carbon economy. They can be well-paying jobs. They can be unionized jobs in renewables, in public transit, in efficiency, in retrofits, in cleaning up polluted lands and water. The best news is that as we transform how we generate energy and how we move ourselves around, we have a a once-in-a-century opportunity to build a society that is fairer than what we have right now and where everyone is valued. We can put justice at the center of that transition. Here are a few ideas of how we do it. We make sure that wherever possible, Our renewable energy comes from community-controlled providers and cooperatives so that decisions about land use um, and how to spend the profits are made democratically by communities and that those resources are used to pay for much-needed services. We fight austerity and climate change at the same time. 
We know that our reliance on dirty energy over the past couple hundred years has taken its highest toll on the poorest and most vulnerable people, overwhelmingly people of color, many indigenous. That's whose land has been stolen and poisoned by mining. That's who gets the most polluted refineries and power plants in their backyards. So we can and must insist that indigenous people and other frontline communities be first in line to receive public funds to own and control their own green energy projects with the jobs, skills, and profits staying in their communities. A few months ago, the movement for black lives that came out of the the Black Lives Matter street protests in the United States released a sweeping platform called Vision for Black Lives, and it's filled with specific policies that get at the root of the many forms of violence visited on black bodies. And it includes many of these core climate justice ideas, and I encourage all of you to take a look at it and see what it inspires. Climate justice also means that workers in high-carbon sectors, many of whom have sacrificed their health in coal mines and oil refineries, must be full and democratic participants in this justice-based transition. And over the past couple of days in Canberra, the Australian trade union movement has been meeting to plot and plan for precisely this kind of transition. Here are a couple of examples of what we're seeing in my country. There's a group of oil workers in the Alberta tar sands. You've all seen the images of just how destructive that industrial project is. They've started an organization called Iron in Earth, and they're calling on our government to retrain them and put them back to work installing solar panels, starting with public buildings like schools. It's a great idea, and everybody supports it as soon as they hear it. Our postal workers union has been facing a push to shut down their offices, restrict mail delivery, maybe even sell them off to FedEx, austerity and privatization as usual. But instead of just fighting for the best deal under this failed logic, they've put together a visionary plan for every post office in the country to become a hub for the green transition, a place where you can recharge electric vehicles, do an end run around the big banks, get a loan to start an energy co-op. Their entire fleet would be uh, of delivery trucks would not only be electric and made in Canada, but would deliver more than the mail. It would deliver locally grown produce and check in on the elderly. These are bottom up. <laughs> These are bottom up democratically conceived plans for a justice-based transition off of fossil fuels, and we need them multiplied around the world. Sounds pricey? Good thing we live in a time of unprecedented private wealth. For starters, we can and must take the profits from the dying days of fossil fuels and spend them on climate justice. We know that fossil fuel companies knew about climate change back in the 70s. They can pay for the mess they knowingly created and will use the profits to subsidize free public transit and affordable renewable energy to help poor nations leapfrog over fossil fuels and go straight to renewables, to support migrants displaced from their lands by oil wars, bad trade deals, drought, and other worsening impacts of climate change 
as well as the poisoning of their lands by mining companies, many of them based in places like Australia and Canada. And we can also spend it on the sectors that are already low carbon. And here I'm not talking about the usual green tech fields, because we often forget that teaching is low carbon, that caring for the sick is low carbon, that making art is low carbon, that public interest media is low carbon. Let's invest in the caring economy. Let's invest in those sectors, the ones that tangibly improve quality of life and create kinder societies instead of hacking away at these sectors in the name of a manufactured crisis called austerity. We can get clean. We have to get fair. More than that, as we get clean, we can begin to redress the founding crimes of our nations. Land theft, genocide, slavery. Yes, the hardest stuff. Because we haven't just been procrastinating climate action all of these years. We've been procrastinating and delaying the most basic demands for justice and reparation, and we are out of time. We have to do it all at once. This should be done because it's right and just, but also because it's smart. The hard truth is environmentalists can't win the emission reduction fight on our own. It's not a slight against anyone. The lift is just too heavy. This transformation requires a revolution in how we live, work, and consume. It really does change everything. And to win that kind of change, it will take powerful alliances with every arm of the progressive coalition, trade union, migrant rights, indigenous rights, housing rights, transit, teachers, nurses, doctors, ANSI prisons, all of it. In Canada, we brought together uh, a, a kind of unprecedented coalition of the yes, um, and we drafted a game plan for getting off fossil fuels in a hurry based on the science that I have been referring to, but putting justice at the center. And we called this document the Leap Manifesto. And it's based on this premise that to change everything, it takes everyone. To build that kind of coalition, it's got to be about justice. Economic justice, racial justice, gender justice, migrant justice, historical justice, not as an afterthought, but as animating principles. And that will only happen if we take real leadership from those most impacted. Not because it's politically correct, but because justice in the here and now is the only thing that has ever motivated popular movements to throw heart and soul into the long struggle. I'm not just talking about going to a march or signing a petition, though we need that too. I'm talking about the sustained daily and long hard work of social transformation. It's the thirst for justice, the desperately bodily need for justice that builds movements. We need warriors in this fight, and warriors don't step up against an accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere, not on its own. Warriors step up for clean water, for good schools, for desperately needed decent paying jobs, for fully accessible health care, for the reunification of families separated by war and cruel immigration policies. You already know that there will be no peace without justice. That's the animating principle of the Sydney Peace Foundation. But here is what we need to understand as well. There is no climate action without justice either. Perhaps I should apologize for all this battle talk at a peace prize. 
But we have to be clear that this is a fight, one in need of that warrior spirit. Because as much as humanity has to win in this battle, the fossil fuel companies have a hell of a lot to lose. Trillions in income represented by all that unburnable carbon. Carbon in their current reserves and in the new reserves they're spending tens of billions to search out every year. And that's why there is such a powerful fossil fuel uh, divestment movement here in Australia led by my friends at 350.org, who I want to shout out tonight because... You've won some important victories, including getting the city of Sydney to divest. Congratulations. Maybe our other sponsor, the University of Sydney, will, will be next. So the fossil fuel companies have a lot to lose, and the politicians have a lot to lose. Campaign donations, sure. The benefit of that revolving door between elected office and extract the extractive sector. But also the money that comes when you don't have to think or plan, just dig. Right now, Australia is getting windfall profits from exporting coal to China. It's not the only way to fill government coffers, but it's certainly the laziest. No pesky industrial planning, no taxes or royalty increases on the corporations and billionaires with the resources to buy those attack ads. All you have to do is hand out the permits, roll back some environmental laws, put new draconian restrictions on protest, call legitimate court challenges green lawfare, trash the greenies nonstop in the corporate press, and you're good to go. (laughs) It is this cozy setup that the indigenous rights and climate justice movements threaten to upend which is why we shouldn't be surprised by the scathing assessment offered just last month by Michael Forrest, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders. After a visit to this country, he wrote, I was astonished to observe mounting evidence of a range of accumulative measures that have levied enormous pressure on Australian civil society. I was astounded to observe what had become frequent public vilification of rights defenders by senior government officials in a seeming attempt to discredit, intimidate, and discourage them from their legitimate work. And he went on. It is striking that many of the people doing the most crucial work in this country, and we're honored that Gillian Triggs is with us here tonight, protecting the most vulnerable people and defending fragile ecologies from industrial onslaught, are facing this kind of dirty war. And we know all too well that it doesn't take much for this kind of political and media war to turn into a physical war with very real casualties. We see it around the world when land defenders try to stop mines and mega dams. It's been eight months since Berta Caceres, one of the great environmental and indigenous rights heroes of our time, was assassinated in her home in Honduras. According to Global Witness, this worldwide, non-metaphorical war is getting worse. They report that more than three people were killed a week in 2015, defending their land, forest, and rivers against destructive industries. These numbers are shocking, and 40% of the victims, they estimate, are indigenous. And let us not tell ourselves that this only happens in poor countries. We are seeing the war for the planet escalate right now in the United States, 
in North Dakota, where police who looked like they stepped off the battlefield in Fallujah are brutally repressing nonviolent indigenous movements of water protectors. The Standing Rock Sioux are trying to stop a massive oil pipeline that poses a very real threat to their water supply, that if built would hurdle us towards planet destabilizing warming, more unburnable carbon. For this, these unarmed water protectors, land defenders, have been shot with rubber bullets, sprayed with pepper spray and other gases, blasted with sound cannons, attacked by dogs working for mercenaries, put in what have been described as dog kennels, strip-searched, and arrested. My fear is that the vilification of land defenders that we're seeing here in Australia, all the various and overlapping attempts at delegitimization, layered on top of openly racist portrayals of indigenous people in the media, coupled with an increasingly draconian security state, prepares the ground for attacks like these. So, though I continue to feel queasy about the carbon I burned on the flight, I'm more than happy to be here, if only to play the role of the confused foreign meddler, saying, hold up a minute, we know where this leads. This is a dangerous path you're going on. This beautiful and beautifully diverse country deserves better. Oh, and this idea that your coal is somehow a humanitarian gift to India's poor, that has to stop too. <laughs> India is suffering more under coal pollution and the climate change it fuels than almost anywhere on Earth. A few months ago, it was so hot in Delhi that some of the roads melted. Since 2013, more than 4,000 Indians have died in heat waves. This week, they closed all the schools in Delhi because pollution was so sick, so, so thick, that they had to declare an emergency. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by these attempts to package coal as a poverty alleviation program. This is the same gang who market their hell holes on Manus and Nauru as humanitarian programs exclusively designed to save migrants from dying at sea. Such a bunch of do-gooders you have. But you don't need me to tell you all of this clearly. <laughs> Australia has some of the most incredible climate justice and migrant rights activists in the world, and it is such an honor to be honored by you. One small way of expressing the fact that I know my work rests on the labor and sacrifices of so many others is to redistribute the generous prize money. So Avi and I will be setting up a mechanism to get it to frontline groups, many indigenous-led fighting pipelines and mega dams, and also building justice-based alternatives. We feel most comfortable doing this in Canada, since that's where our strongest relationships are, and the world is big. Um, we also could really use the money in Canada because a lot of environmental funders are currently under the impression that our Prime Minister is an environmental Adonis and have been slashing their funding. Um, but I do hope that this small gesture inspires others here in Australia to think about how to do more to support black and brown climate justice leaders who are on the front lines of both extraction and deep alternatives. I'd like to end uh, my talk tonight with some words from a great man who we lost today. Leonard Cohen, one of the all-time greats in the Tower of Song, 
Most people didn't know it, but Leonard was passionate about climate justice. And when we drafted the leap, we sent it to him, and he was one of the first people to sign it. And he stood by it even when our media called it planet, you know, economy-destroying and dangerous and radical. He had no qualms about putting his name to it. His last album, released just a few weeks ago, is a masterwork. It's so good that somehow we all knew it was a parting gift. So I'll leave you with the first verse from Steer Your Way. Steer your way through the ruins of the altar and the mall. Steer your way through the fables of creation and the fall. Steer your way past the palaces that rise above the rot Year by year, month by month, day by day, thought by thought. Thank you. Naomi receives the prize for exposing the cultural causes and responsibility for the climate crisis, for inspiring us to stand up locally, nationally and internationally to promote a new agenda for sharing the planet that respects human rights and equality and for reminding us of the power of authentic democracy to achieve transformative change and justice. Well, one of the things that I have most admired about tonight and your work, Naomi, is that you have actually linked the environmental concerns of climate change with human rights, with the phrase climate justice. Well, I went to bed last night with this book, This Changes Everything, and I'm quite a fast reader and I thought, well, I'll just knock it over so I've got a bit of something to say when I come here tonight. Well, an hour later, I just about got through the introduction. <laughs> this is a most powerful and important book. I haven't, I've only read the introduction, but what I like about it, what I like about it as a lawyer is that Naomi backs every statement with facts, as you've heard tonight, and I think that is something I really value. Because for me, as a lawyer, and for, I'm sure you tonight, facts matter, evidence matters, and the truth matters. And the United Nations has recognized what Naomi has been telling us. The negative impacts of climate change are disproportionately borne by the persons and the communities already in disadvantageous situations owing to geography, poverty, gender, age, disability, cultural and ethnic background, among others, who have uh, historically contributed the least to greenhouse gas emissions. Well, as an international lawyer, I've always been inspired by that remarkable document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that rather wonderful, if feisty, Australian Doc Evatt in 1948 was the president of the General Assembly when he got through that remarkable document that he'd helped to draft with Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, he got it through the General Assembly with not a single negative vote. And what it did was to recognize the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family as the foundation for freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Under human rights law, we have a right to life, to adequate food, to water, to health, to human security, and rights for our indigenous peoples. But the great tragedy in Australia is that that vision of Doc Evatt and of others that came in the decades after has now withered away in Australia, these rights are not part of law. They are not part of our judicial system. They are not recognized by parliament and they derided 
by our political leaders, or at least some of them. Um, I believe that we need leadership in Australia to advocate for effective policies to ensure that we not only achieve climate justice in our country, but also that we can take a lead in the Pacific to work for those Pacific Island nations that are so dreadfully vulnerable to sea rise and ultimately, of course, will become the next wave of refugees. Well, I don't know whether anyone's told you, Naomi, but we have a wonderful program here in Australia called the Gruen Transfer. And in the Gruen Transfer, we ask, what would Justin do? <laughs> so uh, we do need some, um, some guidance and some ideas. You've told us so not much tonight, but the idea that I take away with me is stop the endless taking and start caretaking. So it is my huge privilege to present the Sydney Peace Prize of 2016 to Naomi Clark. Hi, I'm David Bradbury, activist filmmaker and proud of it. And any time I'm in Melbourne, I love to do an interview with 3CR and uh, bring you folk up to speed with what I'm doing in different parts of the globe or in, in my own, own turf in Australia. It's really important that we have community radio and that you support it and you get out behind 3CR and the events that they promote and to keep you informed against the uh, mainstream media that wants us to keep our eyes shut and to go back to bed. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio. Hello, it's Fiona Scott-Norman here, and I would just like to say congratulations. You are doing something very important right now. Do you want to know what it is? You are listening to 3CR, Melbourne's most diverse and fascinating community radio station. And you know why it's important? Because diversity is important. Community is important. Community radio is very, very important. And you are a winner. <laughs> 